This is Deirdre Wallach, mother of a free solo climber, Alex Honnold, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I don't think anybody who's truly funny had all of their needs met as children. Today I speak with comedian Paul Gilmartin, former host of Dinner in a Movie on TBS. My dream of being on television was coming true, but there were all these details around it that were causing me stress. And then you throw in a neurotic, self-obsessed, untreated alcoholic. After leaving stand-up and television, Gilmartin started the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a podcast that puts the world of living with mental illness into sharp focus and gets a laugh. Can we swear on this? I am not a therapist. You've been forewarned. But I feel like I do have some some input that's valid. I've been in support groups for 17, 18 years and been in therapy for on and off for 30. <laughs> You're probably saying, well, you haven't gotten any better. Why should I continue listening? I have gotten better. How dare you? How fucking dare you come at me in the first five minutes of my podcast? All right, let's jump into some surveys. Gil Martin came up on the comedy scene in Chicago at Second City with people like Bob Odenkirk of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Paul shares the story of his unusual first encounter with Chris Farley. And I was like, who is this guy? And uh, a year later, he was on the main stage of Second City. And a year after that, he was on Saturday Night Live. His own recovery from alcoholism and depression led Paul to want to create a stage where he could do comedy but go to the depths of life and its suffering and to let people dealing with trauma, substance abuse, and grief know they're not alone. There wasn't any real talk that had off-color jokes to talk about the things that other people might go, nah, that's too depressing, we can't air that. We talk about being creative while sober and with a healthier mind. It felt like, oh, I've gotten out of the way. The gift was having to ask for help and then I found a a new way of looking at the world and relating to people. Paul is also open about his childhood experience of covert sexual abuse by his mother. She created a sexualized environment, you know, and I would years later come to know that your body and your soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. And my body was reacting, but I blamed myself. A lot of mothers are able to get away with sexual abuse, covert or overt because they have access to their children's bodies and we don't think of women as predatory. After sitting with Paul for two minutes, you realize you could share anything with this guy. He's not afraid to talk about any topic on the mental illness happy hour and his many fans credit his persistence at bringing out vulnerability in his guests and in himself for their own recovery successes. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller and this is the final episode of season two, episode 20. Comedian Paul Gilmartin's Mental Illness Happy Hour. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the soul of life.
Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Paul Gilmartin was an actor and stand-up comedian in Chicago before he became a longtime co-host of TBS's Dinner and a Movie from 1995 to 2011. As a stand-up, he's appeared on Comedy Central and numerous other shows. He's been a frequent guest of the Jimmy Dore Show, performing political satire as right-wing Congressman Richard Martin. Since 2011, he has been the host and executive producer of the podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour, which lampoons that he was thrilled to be diagnosed with clinical depression in 1999 because it meant he wasn't just an asshole. By 2003, he realized he was still an asshole and an alcoholic. Since 2003, he's been sober mostly happy, and a tiny bit less of an asshole. Paul's website, mentalpod.com, and the Mental Illness Happy Hour guests that he speaks with serve an invaluable role for candidly pulling back the curtain on what emotional struggles look like for other people. And I think he does so with humor and rawness that many of his listeners credit for saving their lives and from the grips of substance abuse, mental illness, or suicide. Paul, I'm really thrilled to have you here. How are you? I'm good, Keith. Thank you uh, for that introduction. Yeah. Uh, I think I can only disappoint from here. I, hey, that's fine. Let's just do it. Let's just disappoint. Um, <laughs> let's talk about disclaimers for a second. I love, I'm not, I'm not sure what, how you feel about disclaimers. Love the fact that you have on your website. I'm turned on by disclaimers. Do you feel aroused? <laughs> I, <do>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that you have Do to- you mean the disclaimer that I am not a uh, therapist? Yeah. I think that's, yes. I think that's, uh, I mean, that's the world we live in. I understand that. Um, I sometimes get a kick out of, you know, other colleagues of mine, I won't name them, but you know, they'll have this on their answering machine. Um, in case of, if you are feeling suicidal, yeah. please call. Yeah, yeah. This disclaimer thing that we have to, but you know, uh, do, do people ever mistake you for a therapist? Like Paul, I'm really unhappy. I really, I really believe that I was getting therapy from you by listening to your podcast. <laughs> I, I do get people that say that it, it, uh, it's therapeutic for them. Some people even saying that it helps them more than therapy. And yeah. while that's very flattering, um, I, I have a hard time taking it in, uh, because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a peer to peer thing. Yeah. Um, I think what they might mistake for, for expertise is, the authenticity of sharing my stories, my struggles, the insights that I've gleaned, but people's uh, whose stories are vastly different from mine. I know very little 
about. I may have gleaned some stuff from it over the years of doing the podcast, but I'm definitely always in the learning stage. And so that's why I have the disclaimer at the beginning of the show that it's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Yeah. And uh, I like to think of uh, myself in the show as a cheerleader for people going to see the real counselors. Yeah. And and the, the show to bring them comfort and let them know that they're not alone and maybe even be entertained. I think you do that. I've I've been pulled in to to listen to you many times and and uh, not just entertained by your by your angle, you know, of approach on things, which which you don't get from the from the professionals like us all the time. Um, once upon a time, there was a guy named Fritz Perls. He's in all of our textbooks. And he would say the most outrageous things to his clients. I, I, we just can't get away with that as much anymore. But he would say he had this big thing with paradoxical interventions. And he what you know, Bob Newhart did this skit on SNL. Of, he would just tell this, this woman who was paranoid about being buried in a, in a, in a box. Um, he would just yell at her and tell her to stop it. Like, you know, just tell her to shit. <laughs> yeah, I love that skit. <laughs> we can't, we can't do that. I'm afraid. Um, but yeah, you can you can be a little more off the cuff, right? And but yeah. you get people to open up, and it seems like I mean, do you ever have somebody like agree to come on the show, and they know what you're all about? They know you're going to ask, and like you know, I mean, you're really good at it, Paul. You really do stay with the vulnerable stuff and kind of follow the thread. Do, do you ever get somebody that just locks up and says like, you know, yes, stay the hell yes. away from me, man. Um, not quite that overt, <laughs> but I have had people, you know, keep their, you know, their stiff arm yeah. out at me yeah. and instead really just kind of vent anger, which to me is not a substitute for vulnerability. I think it's fine to have combined with vulnerability, but I think the show works best when there's a vulnerability and there's a yeah. bit of a surrender to whatever it is that we're struggling with. Um, because that's, as you know, as a therapist, that's the, that's the currency that helps us heal yeah. is to, you know, say I'm hurting or I'm confused or I don't know. Right. Um, and when somebody feels like comes on and they feel like they have it all sorted out and it's everybody else's fault while other people may legitimately be to blame for pain that they've experienced, um, it's not the full picture. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that you do it. Um, you know, we get paid to do it <laughs> and, and you're, you're volunteering. Well, I, I assume you, you make some money from your podcast. It's very successful. Um, and, and, but, but you're volunteering to do it. This is the, the, the shtick you took on. I don't even know if that's the right word to call it. Can you, can you walk me through, um, that time period in your life starting mental illness happy hour? What was going on for you that led to doing a podcast that, like this that focuses on serious things? Like mental health, recovery, sexual trauma. You're very candid about sexual trauma in your own life, ups and downs of being in therapy. Uh, it was 2011 and I had some friends and my then wife's, you know, saying, you know, you should really do a podcast. And I, you know, I would think to myself, it, it might be fun, but what would I talk about? My friend Jimmy Pardo, who got into podcasting very early on in 2006, uh, has had a comedy podcast called Never Not Funny, which is a great podcast and it's, it's authentic and funny. And I thought, I, I, I can't compete with that. You know, why, why am I going to start a, a comedy podcast? 
And, but I had in the back of my mind that podcasting might be an interesting medium. And I was still hosting dinner and a movie at that time. I didn't know that it would be the last year that we would be doing it, but uh, I had gone off my meds in late 2010 and the depression and suicidal thoughts snuck back in after about four months of being off them for five months. And it surprised me because after two months of feeling fine, I thought, oh, I'm out of the woods. I really don't need meds anymore. And when I finally did realize that it was the depression, uh, I thought, God, somebody needs to talk about this and just the complexity of mental illness mm-hmm. and the shame and the confusion and I was also in a support group for my alcoholism and drug addiction at that time. And I thought, you know, the power of one person telling their story to another person uh, is is a really powerful thing. I wonder if I could do that. But let's talk about mental and emotional struggles and, instead of addiction and not be the solution to it, but rather just a, a safe place for people to feel less alone. And I didn't know if people would listen. And pretty early on, we started getting written up uh, by the Onion AV Club, and that helped, I think, get the ball rolling and getting some some listeners. And by, I don't know, maybe 2013, I started soliciting for contributions and a little bit of advertising started trickling in, and I was able to transition and you know, make my living yeah. from it. And that kind of brings me where I am Wow, today. today. So you recognize that there was a, a need for this I did. space. I did. I never imagined that I would make my living doing it. But, um, you know, I think it's a, a, an example of when we do what feels right and, you know, maybe a, a altruistic even, I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but it wasn't, an, and you know, altruistic uh, endeavor, uh, and I thought would be creatively interesting. Uh, you know, it's not like it was all for the people who might listen, but uh, that was a a portion of it. Was I thought it was needed? I felt like there was a void, uh, like there wasn't any real talk that had off-color jokes or um anything goes when yeah anything goes and and is uncensored to to talk about the things that other people might go nah that's too depressing we can't air that yeah you go to some deep places you do this thing which i love i love your guests i I love your your guests are brilliant but i I find myself wanting them to be quiet i want to hear what you (laughs) What you have to say. Oh my God, you are opposite <laughs> of the voice in my head. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm here to, I'm here to support also. I mean, no, but that's the truth, Paul. I, um, I like, I like your introduction and you have this thing. What do you call it? But you're reading surveys. You do surveys on your yeah. website. You get people to write in about what they're going through. Um, and I forget what you call it, but there's people will have this awesome moment of what's the oh awfulsome awfulsome <laughs> things that were awful at the time, oh, but looking goodness. back, there was something kind of awesome about it. I I just heard the the last one you did about this kid or guy who wrote in about his, finding being being able to discover his dad attempting suicide in the garage because he had snuck out and was yeah. was joyriding and with some kid's car and. You know, it's, you're, you're, you're not laughing, you know, but there's discomfort in hearing this story. 
And so you, you bring that right out front. What are some other things? What are some things people have said, uh, that you've read about that they've revealed that, that just took your breath away? Have there been any that stand out? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Hundreds, mm. hundreds and hundreds of hilarious, sad, poignant, really life kind of crammed into a paragraph or two. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite awful some moments. Can we swear on this? Go ahead. Fuck yeah. Uh, this woman, young woman, was in the psych ward, and there was an old guy, cranky old guy uh, named uh, Ezra. And the nurse brought around this thing of pudding. And she said, Ezra, would you like some vanilla pudding? And he said, you fucking bitch. I told you I don't like pudding. Get the fuck out of my face. And she was like, Ezra, do you want to think again about it? Wouldn't you like some vanilla pudding? Listen, bitch, if I wanted vanilla pudding, I'd fucking ask for it. She leaves. She comes back. She has a big thing of pudding. She says, Ezra, would you, God damn it. I told you, I don't want any of your fucking, pu by God, is that butterscotch? <laughs> and he takes the thing and he starts drinking the pudding. <laughs> the nurse leaves chuckling and, uh, and this young woman turns to Ezra and says, why do you talk to her like that? And he says, if I don't, I don't get the butterscotch. <laughs> <laughs> can't make that up. You cannot make you can't that up. Can't make that up. So you did stand up comedy starting in '87 in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're in LA now. Um, right. Who were the, some of the people you came up with? I mean, you know, I imagine, like you said, this is you didn't expect yourself doing a podcast on mental illness. Um, no, no, not at all. Um, well, of, of, of people that others would know, I'd say probably Bob Odenkirk, uh, is probably, uh, the most well-known of comics that I started out with in yeah. Chicago. Uh, there was a lot of great comics, uh, back, back then. There were a, a lot of funny people at Second City that while I didn't necessarily perform with, they were just getting their careers started then. Uh, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, um, yeah, a lot, a, a lot of people. Jimmy Dore uh, is a, a friend of mine. Uh, we started out together. Jimmy Pardo uh, from from Never Not Funny. You you had um, a you had a I'm re I'm remembering um, you had an the first time you met Chris Farley. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> are you willing to to share that? Yeah, yeah, I was uh, at an audition, and it was in the morning for some reason, which I was not used to going to morning auditions, and I happened to be. I think I was growing weed at that time. And so I'm in this audition and then there's this guy that looks so uncomfortable in his skin. And every person that would come into the audition room, he was another actor just waiting to audition. He would say, Hey man, do you guys have any weed? And, uh, and I said to him, finally, you know, I actually do <clears throat> have some in my car if you want. I said, it's too early in the morning for me to smoke, but if you'd like, I can roll you a joint when we're done auditioning. <clears throat> and he said, oh my God, that would be amazing. So we go into my car, roll a joint. He takes a hit off it and he, and he just, it's like he had just surfaced, you know, from almost drowning. And he was so relaxed. And I was like, who is this guy? And uh, 
year later, he was on the main stage of Second City. And a year after that, he was on Saturday Night Live. Off he went. And I was like, oh my God. I had such a glimpse into his demons in that, in that moment. And he was such a sweet guy. Yeah. Such a sweet guy. Yeah. Uh, a tragedy. And, and that's one of the things yeah. I wanted to talk to you about as well. I mean, you've, you've witnessed, I've talked to musicians on the show and I asked them the same question because musicians, you know, I did, I, I dug up this little piece of research. It's, it's, it struck me as a little odd, but I was, I was, I was looking for like, what are the most, what are the professions we're in uh, that, that are the most at risk for substance abuse? Right next to mineral extraction at the very top. So is that really the top? Dudes that are digging holes in the, in the, in the ground. Number one, mineral extraction. Really? Miners. Number one at risk for substance abuse. Uh, number two is musicians and, and service professionals. So you know, entertainers. You know, so it's right. like, you know, the, mi- the miners are digging a hole to nowhere. And <laughs> you guys yeah, who are out on stage every day trying to make people laugh. I can only imagine. We're you know. digging the philosophical hole. Yeah, right. Somebody's got to do it. Get up there on that stage, yeah. kid. Put the shovel in your hand. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I, I'm not surprised at all by the uh, entertainers being at the at the top of the list, but yeah. uh, the mineral extraction. That's such a specific one. Yeah, I don't um, know too many people that go around saying that they're mineral extractors. You know, I think that's right. an academic <laughs> yeah. term. <laughs> Miners, yeah. Um, I mean, is it possible to be productive in, in LA? <laughs> let's, we get, let's leave LA out of this. Is it possible mm-hmm. to, to be productive as an entertainer, as a comic, um, clean without abusing drugs and alcohol? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think uh, it's, it's even better mm. because you're more willing to take risks, I think. Um, I think if it's accompanied by some type of support network for that sobriety, where you're going in and you're facing the demons that you had been running from, you're finding out what your weaknesses are, but also what your strengths are. And there's a, 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 maybe I'll just speak for myself, but I know this is experience of a lot of other people. There's a renewed feeling of being a part of the universe rather than a mistake mm. or somebody that the, the universe or God is just tolerating a feeling that, wow, I, I, I might have a purpose that is bigger than I can see. And, um, that sense of confidence and I don't, I, of a larger plan yeah. gives you a different vibe. Uh, the anger will always be there, mm. always be able to get in touch with. Mm-hmm. So that's not a problem. But then you have this wider palette of things, you know, being silly comes easier. But, you know, an example of this is uh, before I was sober on the early to mid 90s, my dad attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day after I went to get a haircut and I had my notebook with me. And it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And this poem just poured out of me about Christmas. And of course, it was cynical and satirical and funny. And it became a big part of my act. And I remember I finished it by the time I left the barbershop. Hmm. 
And I remember trying it out on stage and it worked really well. And I remember thinking, wow, what alchemy that this pain can be turned into this other thing. And a year after I was sober, I came up with an idea of doing a satirical uh, right-wing congressman character that I would have never attempted before I was sober because it was a risk. I mean, to put on a a, an, a costume mm-hmm. and go up as another person, but I w- was not afraid to do it. I felt like this is an expression of, you know, this is a satire that expresses my displeasure with where we are mm-hmm. in our political world today. Unfortunately, reality has caught up to it and probably even surpassed the ridiculousness of this character. But it was an example of my creativity was coming from a different place and more interesting comedically. Right. That's really cool. And and podcasting for me in many ways has been the medium that I was trying to force into stand-up comedy. I could never really get vulnerable on stage. When people are drinking uh, and it's midnight and they're tired, it's really hard to, to bear your soul mm-hmm. uh, when somebody might yell something out that's, you know, humiliating. And so I was never able to be one of those comics who could just bear their, their soul like Richard Pryor or Louis Anderson. And when I started podcasting, I realized this is the medium I've wanted my whole life because I can choose when to be funny, but I I can talk about the things that really mean something to me. Yeah. I don't think anybody who's truly funny um had all other needs met as children. Yeah, I was joking with my girlfriend the other day. Uh and I, there was somebody whose comedy we were enjoying, and I was like, I'm glad he had a shitty dad, because that special was awesome. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you, shitty dad. So, I mean, the show on TBS, Paul, Dinner and a Movie, was on from 95 to 11. Tell people what the show was about. Why why was it unique? It was a a show that's called Interstitial, uh, which means it we would appear between the movie that was being shown and the commercials. And we so we would appear maybe five, six times throughout the movie for a couple of minutes at a time. And it was myself. Uh, female co-host and a chef. And the hook of the show was that we were hanging out in this kitchen, cooking a dish that was themed around the movie that we were showing. So, you know, when we were showing Thelma and Louise, we were making a dish called Two Hot Peppers on the Lamb. <laughs> um, usually a play on something, play on words. Right. And uh, it was improvised. We, you know, we had bullet points to kind of know where we were going to go, but the dialogue itself was was made up on the spot. You didn't see a lot of stuff on television at that point that had been improvised. The The biggest thing that was uh, in the <clears throat> TV and movies at that point were the Christopher Guest films like um, This is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, etc. And... Those movies have been hugely influential in, you know, where we are today in entertainment. And I think it was my love of that that made the the job exciting. That being said, it was still a lot of pressure because, you know, we had a day or a half a day to come up with a show mm-hmm. that hadn't been written. And we had to get you know, camera coverage of the recipe and the mm-hmm. silverware had to look right. So 
it was it was really draining. And then you throw in a neurotic, self-obsessed, untreated alcoholic mm. who's working with uh, a, a woman he doesn't get along with. Um, it was it was pretty stressful. And so my dream of being on television was coming true. But there were all these details around it that were causing me stress. Mm-hmm. And I, and I realized, um, pretty early on that I don't really like working in TV. Mm-hmm. I like performing. I like being creative, but I didn't like the pressure of being on a network that censors and not being able to, to do my own thing. Right. Uh, so I had to deal with a lot of that stuff. A lot of cooks uh, in the that, kitchen. A lot of cooks in the kitchen and, you know, eventually we resolved our issues and, um, by that time we had, the show had kind of developed its chemistry, which was uh, almost like a bickering married couple. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it gave us something to work with and it gave the show its flavor that I think people, uh, people enjoyed because up until that point, a lot of shows that were hosted, was that fake niceness, uh, that fake smile. And I think something people never get tired of is authenticity. I mean, I was going to say, it, being, it seems like yeah. it was the beginning of, I mean, you know, I've tried to place this for for our kids, right? Who, like this is, mm-hmm. I, I want to say before Netflix or if Netflix was around, you're ordering it in the mail, right? And it's yes. coming to you. And yes. And so the idea of what's on TV tonight was important. It's a little more mm-hmm. of a reality type show yeah. than... And there wasn't a lot really reality TV at that time yeah. either. It, it was before the internet became popular. Yeah. yeah. You know, the internet really kind of exploded in, I don't know, 96 maybe. But when Al Gore invented it. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. Um, but a, a unique show. And you're saying it, it was, I mean, it sounds like it was a struggle for you. Was that, but did you go, go into treatment during I did about halfway through the run. Oh, three. Uh, I just emotionally bottomed out. And it's funny. I didn't drink during the day. I never had a DUI, but inside me, it, it was, I was hitting a bottom. Yeah. Sad, depressed, angry, hopeless. And I knew something was wrong because I had this job that, you know, a lot of my peers envied that I had this steady TV gig and I could still go on the road and do stand up and, I'd bought a house and all this other stuff that we think is going to make us happy, but I had no spiritual life. I was just living solely for myself and my own selfish mm-hmm. needs. And it's, uh, the gift was having to ask for help. And then I found a, a new way of looking at the world and relating to people and, and incorporating the principles I'd always wanted to embody. But, um, I think my, addictions had made it difficult to be the guy that I wanted to be. And I, you know, I still struggle with those. Uh, I don't think anybody who recovers from addiction is instantly the, the person they want to be in is that way forever. It takes work. Please take the time now to subscribe to the soul of life, wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. It's not magic. <laughs> no, it's not magic. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about, I mean, sobriety is a big part of your, of your story, recovery, and you talk about it a lot. Um, one of the hardest things that we deal with is somebody coming in or someone being shoved into our office. You can, you can just, you can see the, the spouse outside the door, just shoving the them claw marks in the hallway. Office. Yeah. Here, you take them now. Um, 
because he's drinking too much. She's drinking too much using pills. Um, the hardest conversation is when somebody's not even at that stage. We call it pre-contemplation stage. Mm-hmm. And it's a stage. I mean, it's on the map, so we know about it. It's a stage, but it means that somebody's not interested. They think other people have the problem. You know, I can handle my drinking. If somebody else was drinking this amount, they'd be, you know, they'd be dead. But I can handle it. Sure. <laughs> um, how do you respond? I mean, what's your response? What's your recipe? Or what have you cooked up over these years as far as responding to people who are just in this massive denial that, that they're abusing? That, that you, they, the light bulb has to turn on in their head. I can't turn it on for them. I can let them know that I'm here should they decide that they want help. I can set a boundary and, and, and say, I love you, but I can't be around you when you're drinking, uh, or when you're, uh, not taking your meds and you're not in touch with reality. You're talking about boundaries, really, right? You're talking about yeah. knowing where you end and where somebody else begins. Yeah. Right? And it's hard if you grew up in a family without boundaries. Right. Tell me about that. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it was on your list of things to do to talk about incest um, <laughs> in public. Not many people yeah. are able to do it, Paul. Um, and I, I really want to applaud you for the courage that it takes to talk about your own personal uh, surviving of sexual abuse. Well, thank you. And, you know, there's a voice in my head that every time I talk about it publicly says, Oh, you're such a fucking drama queen. Here we go again, throwing your mom under the bus. Um, I don't know how long that voice will be in my head, maybe till my last day on earth. But yeah, my mom was very inappropriate with me. There weren't a lot of boundaries. Well, can uh, I speak I, to that voice for a second? Can yes. I, can, I, can I respond to please, that? Because please, I, I want to say, man, people need to hear this. And... There are people out there listening to this who um, maybe have put it out of their head so far. We can do this. Like this is what happens in our in our mind. We make these compartments and they put it out of their head so far. And by you having the courage to 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 do this, you're 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 making a connection for somebody potentially. So I really well, I, appreciate I, it. I, I appreciate you you saying that, and I have experienced some income someone coming up to me and saying, you know, my story is your story. Yeah. And um, it is a a beautiful moment when you see that two people in pain can sometimes be the people that can help heal each other. Yeah. Um, but very, at a very young age, my mom started treating me like her therapist, you know, at like seven or eight breaking down and talking about her marriage and how she wants to leave my dad and leave all of us because we're so selfish. And so at that moment, uh, I think it was cemented in my brain that my mom, if my mom doesn't get what she wants, this family is going to fall apart. And so when she would, you know, make fun of me or at least chide me for covering up when I was naked, um, I, I would just acquiesce. Um, even though I felt invaded, um, when she would grab my butt you know, until I was in my twenties and a therapist had said, why do you still let her do that? And I said, because it makes her happy. She was like, well, what about you? 
And so I started to set that boundary, you know, when she would call me on the phone and say, hello, Mr. Gilmartin, this is Mrs. Gilmartin, you know, and I would set that boundary and she would act like I was being ridiculous. Um, But I think the really damaging ones were um, taking my temperature rectally until I was eight years old and always feeling like there was something going on that didn't feel right and asking her, why are we still doing it this way? And her saying, well, because I'm afraid you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I remember thinking she's, she's lying. She mm-hmm. knows I'm not going to bite down on the thermometer. You knew. And you knew. Yeah. I knew. Yeah. I knew, you know, and there was a bath at an inappropriate age for a, you know, I had gravel in my knee and it just, it, it felt sketchy and, and it was really confusing because I got aroused. That's what, and I felt yeah. like a monster. A lot, you know? of, and a lot it, of survivors have this. This narrative of confusion because they feel yeah. like they participated and in fact they were, they did participate. I mean, you had no choice at that level at that age, right. but, and so then you begin to internalize that somehow you wanted this or somehow it was your fault. Yeah. A therapist said to me, she created a sexualized environment, you know, and I would years later come to know that your body and your soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. That's right. And my body, was reacting and, uh, but I blamed myself and, uh, you know, I was married for 20 plus years, 25 years. And my ex would always say to me, you have not dealt with the way your mom talks to you, touches you, treats you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time my ex met my mom, she said, I don't like your mom. She creeps me out. Um, and I, I didn't want to hear it. I thought she just wants to make things difficult. Uh, it's amazing the lies survivor work, sur- survivors will tell themselves so they don't have to face the painful truth, yeah. which is that they are an object to yeah. their caregiver. Yeah. And that the very, the, the kind of people they are supposed to be protecting me from is the very person they are being. Yeah. It's an impossible and situation. It's an impossible situation. You you have no place to turn, no place to run. You don't right. even know the words. You don't even know what's appropriate. It's a good point. It's and, a lot of it's pre-verbal, right? It's, it's, it's just yeah. you don't have the words. It's in the body somewhere. The body keeps the score. Yeah, um, it does. And so it wasn't until uh, about nine, ten years ago that I broke down. Uh, I'd been in a support group for a couple of years. I've been sober for maybe seven years at that point and been in a support group for a couple of years because I just, intimacy was such a difficult thing for me. I could not connect my heart to my dick. Yeah. It, it was just two separate things. And, 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 it, and it's like you said, it had to separate. There had to be, yeah. like that was a, it's a protective thing, but then it gets yeah. confusing. Why is, what's wrong with me? Right. Sex, sex had become about control and validation. You know, I was a womanizer. I was unfaithful. I was ashamed that I was an unfaithful husband. I still am. Um, and those were the things that had driven me to this support group. And as I began to abstain from acting out, uh, as, as people in the support group had told me would happen, memories began to surface yeah. even if they weren't necessarily new how i felt about them yeah. felt about them was new yeah. and i would remember how my mom would talk to me like i was her therapist and and 
days later, I would be at the doctor's office and the nurse would have me take all my clothes off, give me nothing to cover up with. And the doctor would bring in a herd of students. And my mom did nothing, said nothing. You know, I had tears rolling down my face. Right. And we didn't even talk about it. And that memory just surfaced. It surfaced along with the other one. Sure. And I cried and cried and cried. And I cried on the, the shoulder of a person in the support group after it was done. She came up to me. She could see I had a lot of emotion. She said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And I broke down and I started crying. And that was the beginning of giving weight to what had happened to me. Yeah. And not excusing my behavior in the past of womanizing and being unfaithful, but understanding it in a different context that while maybe there is more at work than me just being a terrible person deep yes. down inside, yeah. which is another thing my mom would say. <sighs> she would say, you're so cute. And she'd squeeze my Oof. face and she'd say, but you're rotten to the core. Oh boy. Yeah. Double barrel. Yeah. Wow. Double barrel. Um, <sighs> and you know, and my mom has a lot of things about her that are that are great. She could be extremely generous. You know, she can be a great audience, you know, love to laugh, love to be silly. And that's one of the things that I try to touch on in the podcast is that people who abuse often have a lot of positive qualities. You can have a really mixed experience with them. Yeah. They can have a lot of strengths, a lot of, a lot of things that, I mean, one of the mind bending things about the work that some of the work I do in the, in the newer developments in trauma, like IFS, I'm not sure if you're familiar with internal family systems, but this, mm-hmm. um, and Tim Ferriss, by the way, you know, recently revealed his own sexual abuse as a child. And, and he also, so he devoted a number of ep- episodes to this particular style of therapy, IFS, which he really credits to helping him put the pieces together. Cause it's the idea that there's, you know, we're naturally multiple, that these, these parts of us that especially our pre- yeah. survivors, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of shunted off memories and stuff that, well, that's just the way all of us work actually. But in, in, in trauma, it gets more severe. And, and the, the takeaway, which is mind bending is that we can approach these parts of us with compassion, even if they appear to be monstrous. Yeah. Uh, when we approach them with compassion, our own compassion and our own curiosity, they begin to give up their, their, their story, which is that they've suffered, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the yeah, beginning of it, forgiveness. It, you know, we can begin to. It is. And, you know, when, when people write to me or ask me, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to, to forgive this person. My pastor says I need to forgive my father or, you know, some other abuser. I always say, you know, fuck that. For right now, feel what it is you're feeling. Do the work on yourself, work towards taking care of yourself. Self-love may come from that. And with self-love, it is a lot easier to feel forgiveness. I don't believe forgiveness is something that can come intellectually or through instruction. I believe it's the byproduct of spiritual uh, work that we do to help heal ourselves and take care of our own needs. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Um. Can we go from can we go from incest to to hockey? <laughs> oh, I I think the two go hand in hand. I was gonna say, right? Don't, isn't there some? No, there's no connection between incest. Well, you know what's hockey. funny is there is actually a, a a connection for me. There was a um, my league we used to play uh, against a women's team, and they were really good. And there was one player on there uh, who was really dirty. And she would hack me with her stick up around my 
neck. Um, she would talk shit. Um, some of that happens in hockey, but it was really consistent. And I think what made it different with her was the refs were really, really lenient on this team. And it wasn't just my observation. It was all the other teams that played against them. Mm. I think the refs thought, well, you know, they can't do the bodily damage that a full-size man can do. So we're just going to call the man for, you know, that thing that happened in the, in the corner. Right. And I began to get very frustrated and I could not let my anger go at this person. It was keeping me from sleeping. It w- and, and I had been sober for a while at that point and I had learned how to let things go and, and not take things personally, but I couldn't let this one go. Mm. And I thought, well, I can't control the way she acts. I can't control the way the refs call the game. The only thing I can control is whether I show up to play. So I stopped showing up for the games and, um, the team would talk shit, you know, asking where I was, you know, insinuating that I was a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, one time I walked past them, uh, because they were just finishing another game before ours and they were like, you know, just taunting me. Mm-hmm. And. I just tried working and working and working on why I was having trouble having compassion for this, for this woman. And I was making some headway and having compassion for her. But the thing that really unlocked it was I realized she reminds me of my mom. Wow. She is playing dirty and she's getting away with it because she's a woman. Mm. A lot of mothers are able to get away with sexual abuse, covert or overt because they have access to their children's bodies and we don't think of women as predatory. And that was the linchpin that I was able to let the, the hatred wow. and the anger go. That's yeah. amazing. I mean, it surfaced for you <laughs> playing hockey yeah, and you worked with it. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is, that is so cool to hear. The things that torment us actually have a message. They're, they're carrying some message. That's something yeah. we need to deal with. Any any guests that you you would like to make a direct appeal to that maybe you you can't get on your show, but since obviously you know they, they would be listening to my show mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow, uh, you'd want to. Demi just... Lovato is somebody that I, that I've always wanted to interview. Stephen Fry, yeah, uh, I would love to interview. Um, yeah, those are those are a couple that uh, Donald Glover. I'd oh, love man. to talk to him. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he listens. Yeah. I'm sure they listen to, to my show. I, I think they're all huge fans. Yeah. So, so they'll Keith, probably, I, when they get in touch with me, I'll just pass it on to you. Yes. Yeah. Please do. When you have dinner with them this weekend, yeah. let them know. Any, anything you want to say to promote where people can find you? Well, just the, you can follow me on social media at mentalpod and uh, mentalpod.com is also the website for the show. Uh, there's tons of episodes to, to choose from. Um, you can fill out surveys anonymously. Uh, those are uh, a, a great service to the show. It doesn't cost you anything. I'm going to fill one out right now when we're done. Please do. <laughs> anonymously. Please do. <laughs> no, that's great. I do have therapists who have filled them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had one therapist who filled one out and said, uh, I'm showing up drunk yeah. to my yeah. Appointments and I can't stop. See? And I feel like such a hypocrite. You, this, the space you provided, she found that. It's amazing. Yeah. Did you figure out who it was? <laughs> it's my therapist. <laughs> so I fired her. You fired her. <laughs> hey, yeah. Paul Gilmartin, thank you so much for being with me today. Really a, a treat. 
Well, Keith, I loved uh, talking to you. And if you ever find yourself in Los Angeles, I'd love to do a uh, face-to-face interview. Hey, and thank you. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.